This is season one of the Free Flow Podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast. Our show is supported in part by the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation, and our theme music was created by Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues. Today, the podcast features something of a showcase, two very different pieces by writers from two very distinct parts of our country, talking about two singular rivers, both of which are eligible for wild and scenic designation. And in case you aren't familiar, a wild and scenic designation is the strongest protection a river can receive. It ensures that the river is protected forever from dams, mines, or other potentially harmful development. In short, it's a really good thing. And both of the pieces on the podcast today are connected to the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. They're also connected to one another and to one of our favorite river conservation organizations, American Whitewater. Among the tenets of AW's vision are keep wild rivers flowing freely, restore developed rivers so that they can function and flourish, protect public access to rivers, and encourage recreationalists to be active and effective advocates for rivers. Since 2019, Free Flow Institute has partnered with American Whitewater to provide scholarships to creative people who are passionate about rivers. The American Whitewater Scholarship supports Free Flow students who have good ideas for enhancing and expanding public awareness of issues facing watersheds or landscapes, or igniting public dialogue, or encouraging the general public to celebrate, experience, and protect the rivers of our country. It's really fun for us at Free Flow to see what the AW scholars create, what kind of projects they imagine in the name of keeping rivers healthy. So today, we are featuring the work of two past American Whitewater scholars, Allison Fowle and Jack Henderson. Allison was a 2020 recipient of the AW scholarship, and even after all the challenges of the last year, she got out on the Rogue River with Free Flow and Brendan Leonard last October. Allison is a writer and educator based in Boise, Idaho, and she's really cool, totally one of those people you just want to spend time with. Her students are really lucky to have her. Allison's also a committed advocate for environmental justice, and she works really hard to get young people involved with environmental issues ranging from climate change to salmon extinction. In this piece called What's Mine is Ours, Allison takes us to Idaho to the Frank Church Wilderness, the largest federally managed wilderness area in the lower 48, and to the beloved and imperiled South Fork Salmon River, an idyllic tributary to the fabled salmon itself. The South Fork is eminently threatened by mining and appeared on American River's top 10 most endangered rivers list in 2018, 2019, and again in 2020. The Nez Perce, Shoshone Bannock, and Shoshone Paiute tribes have used this river for generations. It offers some of the best expert-level whitewater in the region. It's been designated a critical habitat for endangered salmon, as well as West Slope cutthroat, bull trout, and steelhead. Maintaining connectivity in rivers is key to preserving fish populations. These fish migrate. It's how they perpetuate their species. So keeping dams and mines off the river, and anything else that threatens to fragment the corridor, is essential. 
The South Fork salmon has been deemed eligible for wild and scenic designation by the U.S. Forest Service, but so far does not enjoy that protection. Allison will share more in her story that follows. And enjoy this exploration of education, activism, and our capacity as individuals to act in the face of powerful entities, entities like the gold mining enterprise that continues to pursue rights to develop the South Fork Salmon River. The first time I visited the Stibnite gold mine, I was with a group of high school students from the Silver Valley in North Idaho. I was teaching a two-week course for rural kids who would likely be the first members of their family to attend college. Together, we were exploring the science and politics of the environment as part of an intro to environmental studies course through the University of Idaho's campus in McCall. I had just moved back to Idaho from Denver and I was in McCall for the summer, working for the university before moving down to Boise to start teaching at a radical little private school downtown. I had fallen in love with Central Idaho as a grad student and spent close to three months living at a field station in the middle of the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness while completing my master's. I didn't understand the hold that Idaho's mountains and rivers had on me until I moved away, and I was thankful and relieved to be back. That morning, we'd been picked up by representatives of the Midas Gold Corporation, a Canadian mining company, in lifted 15-passenger vans, outfitted with the kind of mud tires you'd normally see on an F-150. We traveled three hours on remote dirt roads, bouncing in our seats with every rock. We spilled out of the vans at the Yellow Pine Pit, more commonly called the Glory Hole, the most glaring scar of the previous mining at Stibnite. I had never seen a gold mine before, and I had certainly never expected to say the words Glory Hole to high school students. Located on the Payette National Forest, Stibnite has been mined on and off for a century, with operations picking up when mineral prices are high and busting when they drop. The nearby village of Yellow Pine has existed in parallel with the mine. Once a prosperous town with thousands of residents and a full schoolhouse, Yellow Pine has less than 30 year-round residents now. Each company left the mine site worse than the last, taking advantage of poor federal and local enforcement of mining regulations, or in the case of the earliest mines, the total lack of regulations. The Glory Hole is a pit lake disrupting the East Fork, South Fork of the Salmon River and blocking the migration of fish upstream to their spawning grounds. The Nez Perce tribe has spent years and millions of dollars stabilizing the site after the state of Idaho declined to pursue Superfund designation. Midas Gold came into Stibnite with an unusual pitch. Mining caused the damage, so mining should fix it. They've proposed to restore the East Fork, South Fork salmon using the profits of a massive gold mine they hope to develop. It's a classic bait and switch. The project would quadruple the footprint of previous mining operations, burying a pristine meadow in 400 feet of waste rock and raising local stream temperatures by several degrees. Midas Gold has gone to great lengths to perfect their marketing and create the image of an environmentally friendly company. The staff all love to fly fish and their offices have dark sky friendly lighting. It's a pitch that's won over a surprising number of Idahoans. The summer before, I had written a last minute, half-assed sort of public comment opposing the mine. I didn't know enough to comment intelligently on the issue. I didn't even know how to write an effective public comment. And as a result, the Forest Service classified my comment as not substantive. After describing my history in the area, including living and working at the field station just a few miles across the wilderness boundary, I wrote, the Payette National Forest was critical to the development not only of my wilderness ethic and my career in natural resources, but also of myself as a whole human being one who is passionate about protecting Idaho's backcountry. 
What I knew, by instinct, was that gold mines do not belong in the headwaters of the Salmon River, nor on the edge of the Frank Church River of No Return wilderness. I couldn't have told you the science of why the mine would be devastating to salmon populations, or even the political process by which the mine could be stopped. What I knew was that the mountains of central Idaho are unlike anywhere I had ever been before, and that most nights in my apartment in Denver, I dreamt of returning to them. Touring Stibnite with my rural students from the Silver Valley was the closest I had been to my old stomping grounds since moving back to Idaho. Standing on the unlined tailings heap, with Midas Gold geologists to my right and the working class kids of the Silver Valley to my left, I was uncertain of who I should be. Teaching had always felt like a kind of performance to me, like it wouldn't have been appropriate to be the passionate defender of Idaho's backcountry that I had called myself in my comment to the Forest Service. I wanted to be a polite guest to Midas Gold and to be respectful of my students' perspectives on mining. It wasn't like they loved mining, but it was familiar to them. Most of them lived one town over from a place called Smelterville. They knew mining's brutality better than anyone. They had uncles with lung cancer and dads collecting unemployment. But mining was so familiar to them that it was practically water. Maybe there was even beauty in a mine for them, the way we've learned to love a city skyline and ignore what once was, what could have been. To these kids, it was a given that beautiful places also contained bulldozers larger than your house. It was a given that the only way to employ rural folks was extraction. It was a given that capitalism would prevail, that economic systems always triumphed over ecosystems. And in my fear of being elitist or out of touch, I didn't really prompt them to challenge those givens. Not in earnest. I barely knew these kids, and I didn't think our relationship would withstand controversy well. Eating dinner that night, back in McCall, the students gushed about how innovative and progressive Midas Gold seemed. They were all in support of the mine. Six weeks later, I caught my next glimpse of the glory hole. Freshly settled into my new teaching job in Boise, a friend and I pulled a weekend warrior stunt to backpack in the Frank Church, starting the five-hour drive when we got out of work on Friday night. On the way out, it was pitch black when we rolled through Stibnite, which felt like walking through a dark cemetery, knowing it was all there, seeing without being seen. On the way home Sunday morning, we pulled over to stand on the observation deck. It was a relief to look at the glory hole without propaganda narrating my view. I could see clearly now the scope of the previous destruction, a massive, still lake in the middle of a river and a steep, dry trickle above it. Of course the salmon couldn't muscle their way out of the pit. But there had to be a better way to reconnect the river than decades of exploration and mining. Over the next year, I slowly became involved in environmental advocacy as a volunteer with the Idaho Conservation League. I learned more about how change happens in a state like Idaho, where conservation is the rare issue upon which liberals and conservatives agree, sometimes. I worked on outreach projects focused on climate change and our state science education standards, and I finally learned how to write a public comment that wouldn't be thrown out. I glimpsed the glory hole just one more time, passing it during a weekend in Yellow Pine for a backcountry harmonica festival. But the mine stayed in the back of my mind all that time. Going into my second year of teaching high school, I finally felt my feet underneath me. I was ready to take risks. I was ready to be myself with my students. I was ready to stop offering courses like Introduction to Environmental Studies and start offering courses like What's Mine is Ours. A couple weeks before school started, I had a meeting with Teal, the art teacher. We had been wanting to collaborate for a while, and we were meeting to talk ideas for a course that would bring the environment and the arts together. 
Our initial ideas were nothing special. Scientific illustration or something place-based and in the vein of Andy Goldsworthy. Just back from the Harmonica Festival and my most recent visit to Stibnite, the mine was on my mind. I was baffled that so few people in Boise knew about it, despite a prominent billboard sponsored by the Nez Perce tribe that reads, Gold Mines Destroy. As I started describing the proposed mine to Teal, it became clear that we needed to bring our students out to Stibnite. We rapidly designed a month-long course in which we'd examine the proposed mine through the lenses of science, economics, cultural history, and art. We decided to spend the first week of the course camping in Yellow Pine so that we could better connect with the area. We booked a tour with Midas Gold. We made breakfast reservations at the corner, one of two restaurants in Yellow Pine. We spent hours on the phone with the Idaho Conservation League and the Nez Perce tribe. And then we were off to drive dirt roads in vans, bursting with warm clothes and Pop-Tarts and teenagers. All of us, students and teachers alike, were giddy, excited, but nervous. The first night of the trip, we camped on the banks of the South Fork, and a wicked frost set in. It was mid-September, and none of us were dressed for mountain weather. In the school parking lot back in Boise, we'd broken a sweat cramming our gear into the vans. Now, over an hour after sunset, we had just finished eating dinner, and we were starting to imagine the warmth of our sleeping bags. In the morning, we'd meet with representatives from Midas Gold and Yellow Pine, and none of us quite knew what to expect or how to feel about what we were about to experience. Before we could scatter, a student spoke up to invite us to set intentions for the trip, both collectively and individually. Collectively, we decided on gratitude for the experience at all times, especially when things would be challenging, like when I'd have to wake them all up before sunrise the next morning. We wanted to be open-minded and defer judgment about whether the mind should be permitted, we wanted to be polite and gracious to everyone we met, no matter how much we might disagree with their perspectives. And remembering the last time I toured the mine with students, I shared my own intention, to participate as fully in the experience as I expected all of them to, and to not hide my own reactions and opinions from them under the guise of neutrality. When I first started teaching, I thought that to be an educator was to be a cipher. I thought that the best teachers were the ones who could decontaminate content of personal bias and who felt no desire to be admired by their students. I embraced the philosophy of being a guide on the side to the point of being invisible, fully believing in students' ability to master concepts with just the slightest direction. What I had finally figured out was that what I do transcends scientific inquiry or problem solving. My students are also learning how to be human from me. And, of course, I couldn't have been a cipher to them even if I wanted to be. They've seen me pulling into the Boise Co-op in my Subaru. When they need magazines to cut out for collages, I bring high country news. What would they learn from my expressionless face while being pitched a mining project that would destroy habitat for salmon and bull trout? I wanted them to learn what it means to be passionate, to be informed and curious, to be outraged and do something about it. On the road again at dawn, my students fell asleep the moment we pulled out of the campsite. When they woke up, we were in yellow pine. We had coffee while we waited for the folks from Midas Gold to arrive, and when they did, we all shook hands, engaged in the usual small talk about the drive and the weather. They were the same tour guides I'd had over a year earlier when I'd come with students from the Silver Valley, and one of them seemed to remember me. We've met before, haven't we? I wondered if she thought it would be another easy sell. If she did, she was mistaken. The students were relentlessly inquisitive and took diligent notes. We had prepared them well. They asked technical questions about heap leach extraction, water temperature management plans, the impact of constructing miles and miles of new road, and so on. 
What was scheduled as a half-day tour was quickly becoming a full day. It didn't take long for our guides to become defensive in the face of our questioning. They were caught off guard and didn't seem to have set the same intention of polite, gracious attitudes at all times that we had. But when a student asked about the cultural impacts of developing the mine, and our tour guide snapped back, culture doesn't put food on the table, I was stunned. And I let it show on my face, first as raised eyebrows and dropped jaw, and then as a scowl as he continued to hold his position. I was angry, and not just as a protector of my students, who were asking thoughtful, well-informed questions that deserved real answers, but as a passionate defender of Idaho's backcountry. I was angry for my students, and for myself, and for the river waiting to be made whole, and for the salmon waiting to return to their spawning grounds. But my anger broke something open, in me and in my students. In the weeks that followed, we interviewed folks who lived near the mine, and we interviewed fisheries biologists, and we interviewed members of the Nez Perce tribe, and our anger grew and grew and grew, and we knew we had to do something about it. We testified at hearings on salmon recovery, and we put on a public art show about the mine, and we got together and wrote substantive comments opposing the mine's permit. I never once doubted that my authenticity and anger had been appropriate. I knew that my scowl had been an invitation for the students' own outrage to flow freely, taking them toward action. American Rivers has named the South Fork Salmon one of the most endangered rivers in the United States for three years in a row. Though Midas Gold recently changed its name to Perpetua Resources, the threat posed by mining in the headwaters of the Salmon River has not changed. The Forest Service is currently in the process of reading and responding to thousands of public comments on the mine's draft environmental impact statement, including substantive, science-based comments by my students and me. The Forest Service plans to release a final analysis of the mine's impact this May. To learn more and get involved, sign up for updates from Save the South Fork Salmon, Idaho Conservation League, and Idaho Rivers United. Our next piece in the American Whitewater Showcase comes from River Stewardship Superhero, Jack Henderson. We met Jack in 2019 when he came to Free Flow as an American Whitewater Scholar for our Yellowstone River Field Institute. Jack is an avid kayaker and an enthusiastic conservationist, but he's also a cartographer, a map maker. And in his proposal for his 2019 American Whitewater Scholarship, Jack was seeking support for a cartography and photography project focused on the Nolichucky River back home in the southern Appalachians of North Carolina and Tennessee. He proposed a project to bolster the campaign to designate the Nolichucky as a wild and scenic river to create a beautiful, effective visual tool to help garner public support for the effort. So Jack came to Montana, and on his free flow course, we explored the Yellowstone River by boat and on foot, meeting with stakeholders and discussing issues facing the region. The section of the Yellowstone River that we paddled in Montana is now under consideration for wild and scenic designation within the Montana Headwaters Legacy Act, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Then, in 2020, Jack was asked to produce maps for the Montana Campaign's Congressional Briefing Booklets in partnership with American Whitewater, American Rivers, and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. In the story that follows, Jack illustrates how a motivated member of the general public can become involved and ingrained in grassroots efforts to protect rivers, those in their backyard and those on the other side of the country. The month of May in Western North Carolina is a tricky one. We will often have beautiful spring weather, 
but frost and rain are not uncommon. On one particular vernal morning in 2018, we were graced with scattered sunshine, breaking up light fog lazily drifting through the pale blue sky. That memory is easy to recall, meeting my friend Kelly at the Henderson County Airport. Although calling it an airport might be generous, the location where we gathered consisted of five parking spaces spread across crumbling gravel, an old wooden fence casually suggesting security between the road and the airstrip, a half-mile strip of concrete paralleled by lofty grass ready for its first mowing of the year, and a single immense metal hangar whose structure and contents appear to be largely untouched since the 1980s. Considering the appearance, I was impressed and surprised that this place saw passage of dozens of small engine flights each week. Kelly and I were on this relic of a runway to meet Frank Rail Jr., a pilot arranged through Southwings, which is a nonprofit organization working across the southeastern U.S. to pair volunteer pilots with conservation causes. Flights are often coordinated to assess environmental damages following oil spills and coal ash issues, and document ill-constructed strip mines and clear-cut forestry operations, along with monitoring water quality issues. After a quick pre-flight run to the restroom and an overview of safety protocols, we were off, a rumbling speck flying north over Asheville before veering east over the Great Craggy Mountains, past the confluence of the Toe and Cane Rivers, and into an expansive undulating sea of rugged green mountains, split by the mighty Nolichucky, a pristine, loose braid of white water nestled amongst the Unaka Mountains. The Nolichucky River is born within the tallest mountains east of the Mississippi River. Cold springs atop Mount Mitchell, the Black Mountain Crust, and the Rhone Highlands birth steep rivulets, which grow to create the Toe and Cane Rivers, joining to form the Nolichucky near the community of Poplar, North Carolina. From Poplar to Irwin, Tennessee, the river tightens and steepens, weaving its way through the rugged Pisgah and Cherokee National Forests. Downstream of Irwin, the Nolichucky roams leisurely through pastoral eastern Tennessee before spilling into the French Broad River at Douglas Lake. In 2017, the river's natural beauty and cultural history inspired a modern movement to designate the Nolichucky River Gorge as the southeast's next wild and scenic river. What began as an online petition initiated by a passionate Nantahala Outdoor Center guide, grew to become a multi-year campaign to gather endorsements, educate stakeholders, leverage support, persuade decision makers, and ultimately bring a groundswelled interest to the members of Congress and request for a bill to be introduced. The National Wild and Scenic River System was created in 1968 to preserve rivers with outstanding natural, cultural, and recreational values in a free-flowing condition for the enjoyment of present and future generations. Designation would ensure that the Nolichucky is never dammed nor diverted and that its special scenic and recreational values would remain untarnished. Wild and scenic designation was first recommended for the Nolichucky by the National Park Service in 1980 and again by the U.S. Forest Service in 1994. Due to tension between local landowners, advocates, and the federal government, both attempts failed to gain sufficient traction to be successful. I wanted to offer what I could to support this grassroots effort, and decided that I could volunteer my humble talents in photography and cartography to capture images and create a compelling map of the river's geography. With that, our goal with the flight was to shoot scenic photos of the gorge for use in compelling media outreach 
and create an educational topographic map that would be used to inform viewers of the effort to designate this section of river as well and scenic, and the action yet to be taken. I wanted those interested in the campaign to fully understand what wild and scenic designation means. For those who are not aware of the river's outstanding and remarkable values, I wanted the map and aerial photographs to inspire interest and appreciation for the river's remote and rugged character and natural beauty. Back in the plane, our position in the tiny aircraft did not always align well with the wings and struts, so we ended up encircling the 8-mile gorge several times to allow for each aspect and perspective to be documented. What should have been a few simple clicks of the camera became a quest to find the perfect combinations of angle, light, field of view, and lack of clouds. As Mr. Bell tugged the yoke and we soared back home, a light yet perpetual sense of gratitude lingered between us for what we had seen. Throughout the summer and autumn, I worked in earnest to complete the map, trying to account for and appropriately display every detailed summit and riffle, each cultural landmark, and piece of infrastructure. I wanted the map to be something that users would enjoy over a beverage, or on a tailgate, framed on the wall, or even in meetings with land managers or members of Congress. Something informative to be useful for orientation, yet catch a person's eye when on display. Once the map was complete in late 2019, I worked with American Whitewater to sell prints as a fundraiser to support their technical assistance on the campaign. By then, campaign organizers had secured over 23,000 individual endorsements and support from more than 70 businesses. American Whitewater's National Stewardship Director, Kevin Colburn, had begun to seek and secure support from local governments and communicate the campaign to a federal congressional delegation in Washington, D.C. I wanted sales from the map to support American Whitewater's work, and we ended up selling more than 100 maps, raising over $1,200 for the campaign through the next few months. When I asked people why they bought the maps, responses ranged from desiring wall art reflecting their passions, a paddling and of the Nolchucky River, to further understanding the campaign's geographic extent, and simply to support the campaign. It's no mystery that people are more apt to protect a place they are familiar with, and maps and photos are often the first step in that orientation. Well-crafted maps and the underlying data are invaluable assets in efforts to protect and steward rivers. They transform vast and complicated landscapes into digestible two-dimensional images where viewers can recount their own memories or visualize somewhere new. Place-based connections are the foundations of good storytelling, and maps literally give the viewer bearing to the subject at hand, connecting photos and narrative descriptions with typographic locales. I found that maps are useful in fundraising, education, inspiration, and persuasion, and I hope to continue to create such tools in concert with the campaigns led by our community's most motivated and talented individuals and organizations. When I learned that I had earned a scholarship at the Free Flow Institute sponsored by American Whitewater, I was thrilled to have a chance to bring this project to a network of accomplished and burgeoning writers interested in the outdoors and conservation. Compared to the endeavors of other writers and artists on the trip, my project was certainly not the most well-worded or widest reaching. But the cartographic aspect was unique. Through Free Flow's guidance and organic conversations with other students, I expanded my knowledge of voice and audience when crafting the map's concise yet impactful narrative, which I described the geography and character of the river itself, along with what wild and scenic designation is and how it would be achieved with this campaign. The map ended up being popular on social media, with its message informing hundreds of people about what Wild and Scenic is 
and what designation would mean for the Nolchucky. In urban Tennessee, USA Raft, an outdoor adventure outfitter on the banks of the Nolchucky, displayed and sold prints of the map and photos to their visitors and clients, and used the map to train staff and guides to be familiar with the campaign. Pew Charitable Trust even wrote a blog post about the campaign and used one of Kelly's photographs from the South Wings flight. And lastly, during the Wild and Scenic Rivers Coalition's March 2020 Hill Week in Washington, D.C., I shared my maps with congressional delegation staff members and House members on subcommittees related to natural resources so that they could visualize the landscape we were advocating for. Following the Nolichucky project, I was given the opportunity to create 18 maps detailing the rivers proposed for inclusion in the Montana Headwaters Legacy Act, draft legislation to protect numerous rivers across the Montana Rockies. These maps were included in briefing booklets presented to Senator John Tester and others, accompanied by narrative text, photos, and metrics assembled by the talented staff of organizations like American Rivers, American Whitewater, and the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. I received a print copy of the briefing booklet shortly after the Montana crew presented to their respective federal congressional delegation, and holding that stack of heavyweight paper brought tangible satisfaction to the months of hard work in creating the maps that bound the accompanying descriptions, details, and images. A similar sense of accomplishment came from the moment when that first round of Nolichucky maps arrived from the printer in North Carolina. The river itself shining in semi-gloss, ready to inspire and educate action for folks close and afar. Immense amounts of satisfaction and gratitude were gleaned from both of these projects, and I hope to continue to create similar tools in concert with the campaigns led by our community's most motivated and talented individuals and organizations. Here's an update on the National Wild and Scenic Initiative, the Montana Headwaters Legacy Act, and the Nolichucky from our friends at American Rivers. And we'll link to this article in the show notes too. It's also on the American Rivers website. If Congress passes and President Biden signs every piece of current introduced legislation to protect rivers, approximately 6,700 new miles of rivers would be permanently off limits to future mining, development, and dams. The Montana Headwaters Legacy Act would protect nearly 336 miles of rivers, nearly doubling the protection of the best free-flowing rivers in a state that is truly defined by rivers. Sections of the Madison, Gallatin, Yellowstone, Smith, Boulder, Rock Creek, and the Bear Trap Canyon of the Madison are all included in this bill. The campaign was born more than a decade ago out of a truly grassroots effort that included an incredible amount of public outreach, asking Montanans what they wanted to protect and why. This approach was groundbreaking and painstaking, including hundreds of meetings fully open to the public, some even advertised on local radio stations. The results speak for themselves, with over 3,000 Montanans and more than 1,000 Montana businesses voicing their support for significant new wild and scenic river designations. And for the Nolichucky, the Forest Service has found the river eligible, recognizing its wild and scenic potential and providing administrative protection to the Nolichucky. Some ask why we need to go the extra mile to permanently protect the Nolichucky, since it already enjoys some temporary protection. One of the river's chief advocates, Kevin Colburn of American Whitewater, put it best when he said, just because you're engaged doesn't mean you should never get married. We are hoping Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina, who is retiring in 2022, 
will champion the Nolichucky as one of his final acts in the U.S. Senate. Here at Free Flow, we'll be announcing our 2021 American Whitewater Scholars very soon, and we are always thankful to American Whitewater, American Rivers, and the tremendous generosity of the Free Flow community in our effort to support more students on their courses. If you or someone you know has a good idea about how to protect rivers, check out the scholarship program at freeflowinstitute.com. As always, thank you for listening. And thanks to the Montana Arts Council, the Prop Foundation, and the Free Flow community for supporting the podcast. You can subscribe to the Free Flow podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Until next time, get outside, do what feels good, and keep in touch.